Hear now the word of the Lord. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. My brothers and sisters, this is the holy, inerrant word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Once again, good morning and happy new year. Uh, as we've gone over a lot of the worship order, uh, once again, I want to remind you, it's because we really want to convey a reverence to the Lord God as we give worship. Uh, going over each element is a little bit more tiring for me, but I think it's worth it, right? We'll learn why we do the introit or what the sanctus is or even what a prelude is for and why churches and the people of God have done it for centuries and thousands of years now. And so as we give worship to God, this is something that we want to continue to learn. And the in central, what's central to the service is now what we are seated to listen to, which is the word of God being expounded, the word of God being exposited, the word of God being preached. And so let's start with a prayer. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so today I wanted to start the new year by talking about leaders, about talking about really elders. And a lot of us, we've grown up in the church. I think maybe most of us, we've grown up in the church, except for a few of us. And then when you see a title like this, you might be thinking, well, the title is a little nonspecific, isn't it? A little non-directional. Are you going to talk about the importance of being a leader? Or are you going to talk about the importance of the position of a leader? Or are you going to talk about the importance of just having leaders? But hopefully this morning we can get through all of them. For we will be going over what the scriptures tell us about what an elder is. Before we started our next sermon series, which is going to be on 1 Samuel, I had mentioned that we will be going over what I believe to be some of the more important topics that our churches are facing today. I won't be able to cover everything, obviously, but we have covered the sin of envy, tackling the idea that pleasure isn't the greatest thing in the world and suffering isn't the worst thing in the world either. We even went over the importance of celebrating Christmas, to party and not sin. 
And most recently, we have gone over rejoicing in all kinds of trials. And hopefully, we do see that the scriptures address all the important questions in life. So mining the scriptures with you, week in and week out, has truly been an incredible honor for me. And it has been an even bigger joy for me. And I sincerely look for look forward to continuing the sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit is doing through the Word of God in all of us this coming year as well. But when we talk about church elders and church leaders, there are perhaps many differing opinions and views on what someone may think a church leader should be. Perhaps you're raised in the church and you saw a certain type of a model pastor or elder or some other form of leader. And maybe you believe then in your growing up in the church, you've seen the good, you've seen the bad, and you've seen the ugly. And perhaps because of these things, you have strong beliefs now on what a leader should be. Maybe you saw a weak leader, and you think now the church needs strong leaders. Maybe you saw a domineering leader, and you think that the church could use a little bit more humble leadership. Maybe you saw a greedy leader, and you think that the pastor should live a humble life. Maybe you saw a pastor who couldn't even afford to own a house or nice clothes, and so you think he needs to be paid more. I've realized that a lot of people have a lot of different thoughts on what they believe an elder or pastor should be, even if you don't go to the church. When I was a younger man, I brought my car into the body shop, and then when I had met the mechanic, he found out that I was a pastor's kid. I wasn't even a pastor then. He found out I was a pastor's kid, but I was still an adult. I was working, and he saw my you know, hunk of a car, right? It was, it was, it was a hunk of junk, rather. But um, I said, oh, he's like, this, is, this car's about to go. And I said, yeah, I should get a, a new car. And he said to me, make sure it's not a nice car because you're a pastor's kid, right? So that's how he responded to me. I realize a lot of people have a lot of different thoughts and what they believe an elder or a pastor should be. But perhaps there's even trauma from what you've received from a bad or failed leadership. And going further, perhaps these failed leaders have disenfranchised you from ever fully committing to the church ever again. And while you're listening to me, some of you might be thinking, why are you putting the elder and pastor on the same level when you're talking about leaders? Are they even the same? There are a lot of questions that need to be answered when it comes to the importance of leaders and especially leaders inside the church. Maybe you grew up in the church and there were, there were no clear distinctions between even elders and deacons. Maybe you grew up in a church where a deacon was simply a stepping stone to eldership. Maybe members of our church likewise read their Bibles and now are wondering why so many different churches 
hold to so many different understandings of leadership. So this is why church ecclesiology is important. Maybe it's not the most important thing, but just because something isn't the most important thing doesn't mean it's not significant, and it doesn't mean it can, it can make or even break your church. Ecclesiology is, of course, what I'm referring to is the study of the church and its relationship to Jesus. In it includes our understanding of church polity, its discipline, and its leadership. If you've listened to our podcast, which I encourage you all to do, especially the elder one, I've addressed this statement. Um, I've addressed a statement that many people even make like, well, I don't care for politics, or I don't care for church politics either. It's just all very disappointing. And by that, I think when people say that, I don't care for politics, I don't think they actually mean the word politics. Because if they did, if you really thought that you don't care for politics, that means you are uninformed, and therefore you are admitting that you are stupid. I don't think that's what you are saying. I think what when people say that they don't care for politics is they don't care much for other people's political stands or opinions. So I don't really care for politics, meaning I don't really care for what other people's opinions are on government. And then that's something entirely something else that I can address some other time. But polity or politics in the church are important because it addresses the organizational structure of the governing body. So to address polity then is to naturally address the elders and leaders in the church. But first, let me give you some different takes on church polity. There are essentially, if you look at the Protestant church, there are essentially three variations of polity, which are the following. The prelacy, the presbytery, or the independency. The prelacy, the presbytery, or the independency. These are three are models. And this is far more familiar if I say that the prelacy is the Episcopal model. Or you can see this, this kind of government being played out in the Episcopal church or the Methodist church, right? This is where the bishop has ultimate authority and rule over the churches in the area. And then there's the Presbyterian model, which is the Presbyterian church. That, that one's pretty simple. That's when the session or the L group of elders rule the church. And then finally, there is the congregation. The independency is the congregational model, which we see played out in the Baptist denomination. This is where the congregation always gets final say. So then the question then is, there are all these three different models. Which one is clearly then the biblical model? Because what we want to always say is that the Bible is our standard for all faith and practice. That includes church government. And before I get into that, I want to address also some common statements I heard when I grew up in the church, and they are still floating around today. Have you heard, ever heard, that the church is like a hospital? 
that it's for sick people. Well, let me tell you, the church is not a hospital. The church is from the word ecclesia, which means called out. The church has been set apart for God's holy people. The modern-day hospital may have some similar characteristics, but they borrowed those from the church in the first century, and especially when the hospital started to get organized in the fifth and sixth centuries. But the church is not a hospital. That's ridiculous. Hospitals were formed because Christians caring for the sick. These people will be nurses now, right? Nurses and doctors, but mainly nurses. The people caring for the sick would start to get organized and they started to form institutions. And like I said, especially in the 5th and 6th centuries. And the Christians got together. Hospitals came out from the church. It is not the church. And I don't like the analogy when people say that the, hosp- the church is like a hospital. Because while the church still does care for the needy, it does so much more than that. If anything, a hospital could be looked at as a parachurch ministry. That means coming alongside the church. A ministry that is coming alongside the church, but is not the church. And if it is anything like the church, it is because hospitals came out from the church. Secondly, you may have heard that the church is like a corporate model, like a corporation. You would have the board of directors, the elders, right? And then you have the CEO, the senior pastor. I think this is the more reprehensible of the two examples. I have little doubt that the model of the modern organizational structure came out from the church. However, the church model is not the corporate model. The success of the church does not depend on whether we execute a successful corporate model in the church. The pattern of the hospital and corporate structure may have come from the church, but the local church must not pattern itself to the hospital or corporate structure. When you do that, you're, it's like copying a copy. You're never going to go back to the original. It just gets more degraded the more you copy a copy. You lose so much, and many times you'll see that you've lost it all when you compare it then with the model that the Bible gives us for the church. So going back to church polity then, our church in particular follows the Presbyterian model. And hopefully as we continue on in today's message, we'll get to see why. But there should be no doubt that church polity is important because, and not exclusively because, but one major reason why is that it directly affects who can be a leader in the church what the leader does, and to whom a leader is accountable to. And in regards to leaders, if these past two years have taught us anything, the question isn't, how shall we live? But the question really is, who shall decide how we live? If you understand that statement, that's politics 101, by the way. The question isn't how shall we live, but who shall decide how we live. 
the elders' decisions in the past two years have affected the way we worship, in what manner we worship, how we responded to any kind of outbreak of this novel virus. This is the first question of politics. And the Bible does not leave us to our own devices when answering this question. Understanding this, then, will affect who can be a leader or an elder. Depending on the church's polity, then our prospective leaders held to the biblical requirements that we read today in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and also what we will read in Titus chapter 1. Because if a church emphasizes a potential pastoral candidacy on someone's professional accomplishments over his personal character and family life, it would lead the church to being led by someone who is biblically not just unqualified, but disqualified. What if you add to the requirements then? You saw the requirements. Can we add to the requirements? What if a church will not consider a person unless they have a minimum education level, like a master, master's in divinity? What about an age or in recent times, a gender, whether they are single or divorced or remarried? A church's polity will determine who can be a leader. And leaders do many, many things that affect the church. As a senior pastor, I'm the one primarily responsible also for the staff. Who gets hired? What their roles are? How then will, would you go by selecting then a senior pastor? And again, what is the senior pastor in relation to the other elders? But there should be little doubt that the roles given to the leaders in the church are crucial. They are crucial for the maturing in faith in the body of Christ. That's also why leaders are examples to the church and the community around them. Their testimony can either help or hurt the cause of Christ and people's perception of the gospel. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You are called to imitate your elders. You are called to imitate your leaders. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3 directly says that elders must be examples to the flock. Even the passage that we read today says that an overseer must not only manage his household well, he must be also well thought of by the outsiders. The church's polity will then either help choose qualified men to become leaders or help choose unqualified people that will have a negative impact on not only those inside the church, but outside as well. So as I continue, let me also say that the church must have elders. It's shown to us in the New Testament. Paul made it a priority that whenever he planted churches, he also made it a priority to appoint elders. We see it being consistent and widespread in the New Testament and the early church afterwards. But leaders are mentioned in the Bible and they are given various titles. Some leaders are called elders. Some are called overseers, like we read in verse 1. And overseers is another word for bishop. This is why you hear the word bishop. 
And then we also hear of pastors, and pastor is another word for shepherd. And then we also even see the title deacon in the verses after this. However, when it came to elders and leaders, some of these terms were interchanged freely. They were used interchangeably. And the three texts that demonstrably prove this is from Acts chapter 20, 17, and verse 28. So Paul would go to Miletus, and he would call the elders of the church to come to him. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17, he called the elders of Ephesus to come. And when he's giving them instruction, in verse 28 of his instruction, he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops, overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so it says here, he called for the elders, and when he called them, he calls them bishops. So already there's an interchange between these two titles. In Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, this is what he says. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Again, that's what elders do. They put things into order and appoint Elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And he goes on. So in verse 5, he calls them elders. And in verse 7, he calls them bishops or overseers, it's the same Greek word, episkopos, right? That's where we get the word bishop. There's a third part. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, this is how Peter addresses the elders. He goes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed shepherd the flock, that means pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And the word for oversight is overseer there, which is the word bishop. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. These passages should show clearly now that they are the same position. Elders, bishops, pastors, they're the same position. If they were, they wouldn't be, and so they're not two separate offices. So some people grow up in the church thinking that the bishop and the pastor or the bishop and the elder or the pastor and elder are different offices. They are not. If they were, they wouldn't be used interchangeably by the apostles. And number two, there will be different qualifications for each different office, but there are no separate qualifications given. They are all the same from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 to 1 Peter chapter 5. The qualifications are the same. Their duties are the same. Both elders and bishops and pastors are given the task of ruling and leading the church. Not only that, they are given the duty of teaching the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, it says, He must be able to teach. 
in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So, after I said all this, if the office is the same, why is there a distinction between pastor and elder? First of all, let me reiterate, a pastor is an elder. The distinction is made then because of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. And in it, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there are there is something called the first among equals. There are those even among the elders then who have been tasked to labor in preaching and teaching. And the scriptures teach that they ought to be considered worthy of double honor. They are distinguished because of how the scriptures set them apart. In our church, we call these people, in particular, we give them the title pastor. Some Presbyterian churches distinguish them by calling pastors teaching elders and lay elders ruling elders. So there are teaching elders who's the pastor, and then if you're just a regular elder, you're a ruling elder. This is, I think, is a decent distinction, but it shouldn't be confused that teaching elders cannot rule and ruling elders cannot teach. But Paul references it specifically as elders who rule well. So that means teaching elders also rule. Rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. It's the same office, just one is distinguished amongst even the elders. Some Presbyterians distinguish this difference by not calling them teaching or ruling elders. Maybe you went to an OPC church or something like that, and they distinguish them by simply calling, calling them ministers and then elders. I believe just pastor is okay, so we've kept that here. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, we are told that Jesus gave to the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. By the way, these three offices have passed. And finally, the teacher-pastor, the teacher-shepherd. Why? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So apostles, prophets, evangelists, even though they have passed, in that time they were given to the church to equip the church. But the office that remains is the office of the elder. I should note that while the pastor may be given the primary role of preaching and teaching the church, it doesn't mean that other elders are not to teach then. Again, one of the qualifying characteristics to even be considered an elder is, they, is that they must have the ability to teach. And like it said in Titus, this means that they must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. An elder must know correct doctrine and defend it against anyone who would corrupt it. So is it important then to call elders, elders and pastors then? Is it important to have titles and we specifically have to have it in every church? And titles are not essential. But while they are not essential, again, let me tell you they are important. And let me explain why. It is not essential in the sense that titles are necessary to establish status. 
This is what the scribes and the Pharisees really wanted. They wanted status. So people would have to refer to them as rabbi or rabbi, right? And Jesus would say this to them. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. So Jesus is responding to some men who just wanted to be elders of the community of the church or seek leadership because of the title and recognition that it brings. And Jesus clearly warns against this. And he continues on in Matthew chapter 23, verse 11, saying, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Leadership in the church especially, but leadership is not about acquiring titles, but about being a servant just like Jesus Christ was. But again, just because it is not essential doesn't mean it's not important. The Bible uses titles like elders, overseers, and pastors because it explains the role someone has. Titles that are used in Scripture is given, they are given because it allows for the church to know then what to expect from that leader. You know that if you call someone pastor, that the congregation understands that the Holy Spirit has made this man an overseer. And not only that, this biblical terminology for elder holds these leaders to the biblical qualifications. And that's why we don't call elders and pastors by another title that the Bible doesn't say. We don't call them council members, and we don't call the session a leadership team or anything like that. We call them titles found in the Bible because we hold them then to biblical standards. In our church, I understand that some people refer to me, though, as P-Huge. And I take that as a term of endearment. Our youngest ones call me Pooj, and that just melts my heart, right? I think it's a term that younger people tend to use. I think it will be weird if someone more seasoned in their life, they called me P-Huge. It's like when you're saying, when you're a kid, you say, Mommy, it's a term of endearment. But as you grow older... Most of us refer to our mothers as mother, or we call her mom. Bottom line is that if you're new to the church, uh, don't be shocked if some folk might call me P-Huge instead of pastor. Uh, there were some in- I'm addressing this because there were some instances where people took it as disrespect for the office. But I'm just trying to share perhaps some reasons why someone might call me pastor, or P-Huge, or even Pooj. Plus, I don't think that's the point. The point is that every time someone would use the title in our church, it should point to the recipient and the church member to the biblical standards given for that particular office. But not only standards, elders have authority. As we've seen in the Word of God, the authority of elders comes not from man, but it comes not from a congregation vote or something like that. It comes from God. The member's role, I will say then, is to affirm the elder's call and authority. When you have a vote, it's to affirm that 
This man has the authority and call placed on him by God to be an elder. That's why when you vote an officer in, it is not a popularity contest. You don't vote I or nay because you like or dislike the person. Members who fear God and obey him would know better than to vote accordingly. The authority of an elder is given by God and it is to serve the church. Elders are servant leaders that the church will gladly then submit to. Elders aren't there to state their own opinions. They are there to serve. In Acts chapter 6, says this. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is where we get the office of deacon. Deacon is the word to serve. And in verse 2, deacons that were being chosen the words that are put together is deacon tables. They were to serve tables. They were literally waiters for tables. And the apostles said they had to prioritize between preaching the word of God and serving tables. They are both important. But if they had to prioritize, it would be serving the word of God. And then to be a waiter or the task of serving tables were given to seven men that you read later on in the chapter. However, even those that are preaching the word in verse 4, where we read into the ministry of the word, that ministry is the same word deacon, serve. Elders are there to deacon the word. It's to serve the word just as deacons are there to deacon tables or to serve tables. That's why the elder is also a deacon. But instead of serving tables, he is to serve the word. So the authority of the elder comes from God and not man. And the job of the elder is to serve. And that is why it must be pointed out that every single leader's authority, elders, yes, but even secular leaders, all earthly authority is not absolute. The secular politician's authority is not absolute as well as the elder's authority is not absolute. Authority is derived from the word of God, and when a leader strays from that word, they abandon then their God-given authority. And this is especially true for elders. This is why I continually urge you, our church, to pray for our leaders, especially our elders. Elders shepherd because they are called to shepherd. Elders teach because the word calls upon elders to teach. But when the elder strays from scripture, their authority is no longer binding on the congregation. And then the congregation will also suffer. Elders together are called the session, which means literally to be seated. That means they rule. But when leaders rule unwisely or stray from the word of God, the members of the church become susceptible then to wolves, false teachings, rampant sin, and the infusion of worldly principles. So who can become an elder? 
and what, what qualifications are there for him. There are a lot, but to make it easy for this morning, because this is very heavy, but it's very important, I put it into three basic categories. And the three basic categories of the qualification of elder are situational, familial, and moral. Situational, familial, and moral. From these three branches, they, they branch off into more specific qualifications. But it's important that an elder fulfill all the qualifications from all the branches that are being said in all three categories. You can't just say, he has one from the situational, he has one from the familial, so we can get him as an elder. That's not true. These branches that I'm saying is just for our learning, so it's easier to learn, but they're all necessary. So an elder must have every single quality that I'm about to tell you now. First, let's go to the situational. They must have a desire to serve. And by the way, these are all going to come from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. So you can find them there. They must have a desire to serve. It's not formally a qualification that we saw in verse 1, but it offers us wisdom. You're not really dragging someone into the eldership. It's like, oh, I don't want to be an elder, but I guess I will be. They must want it because they know it's a noble and good task. Number two, they must be able to teach. They must be able to communicate God's word in a way that is clear, accurate, and understandable. And not just any doctrine. They must teach the correct doctrine. This means an elder cannot have a cursory knowledge of the Bible. He must be immersed in the teaching of the scripture so that he can exhort in sound doctrine and rebuke those who reject sound doctrine. I want to make a note on the ability to teach, though. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have the ability to preach. The scope of teaching isn't uh, preaching, right? So whether it's 20 people or 200 people or 2,000 people, it's really about having the ability to disciple. Number three, not a recent convert. You can't be a new believer, otherwise you may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. When an elder becomes proud, he ends up ruining his ministry and defaming the name of God. It will lead to his destruction. Number four, he must be well thought of by outsiders. How do non-Christians see him? Neighbors, co-workers, relatives, all spend time with a church member that you may not see. I mean, all spend time with him that a church member may not see. If someone is shady in his business dealings, but comes out to church and acts like an angel, it will be harmful then to appoint him as an elder. He would then fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil, the Bible says. So that is situational. Let me go to familial. The husband of one wife. Interestingly enough, this is at the beginning of both lists in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Being placed in the front suggests its importance, even though perhaps at first glance you might not think so. In the Greek, it can literally, though, be translated. The husband of one wife can literally be translated as a one-woman man. That means if he is married, he is only married to one woman. And if he is not, he will still be a one-woman man, so to speak. 
eventually, or maybe just stay single until he dies. Unfortunately, many elders have disqualified themselves because they were not one-woman men. Number two, he must be able to manage his household well. If he's going to manage the church, he must at least be able to manage his own home. If his children aren't respectful of him, how can you expect the church to be? In Titus, it even says, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And I don't think this is referring to adult children. I'm, I think it's obviously talking about children that are still under his roof and care. So he must be able to manage his household well. So we went over situational and we went over familial. And now let me go over the last big branch called the moral and this is by far the most exhaustive list. He must be above reproach. He must be a godly, faithful follower of Christ. Someone who is an example worth following. Number two, he must be sober-minded. He must be mentally clear, emotionally stable. There will be a lot of situations that can potentially flare tempers and pressures that will try to unbalance their judgment. Number three, he must be self-controlled. Men who could use discretion, who aren't given into addictions. Number four, he must be respectable. He has to have a solid character, virtue, courage, honor. All make the elder respectable. He must be hospitable. An elder's life must be open so that others can be a part of it. This is an incredibly underrated biblical virtue. But all the Bible heroes, all the biblical heroes understood its importance. When Abraham saw three guests come by, he went above and beyond to be hospitable to them. He made more bread that they could ever eat or even take on their journey. Because hospitality is a character and virtue that the Lord shows is so important. That means the elder's home is open, his office is open so that he can minister to the church. Number six, he must be gentle and not quick-tempered. That means he must be kind and courteous, patient, merciful, gracious. Number seven, he must be a lover of good. That means he loves righteousness and he loves God's standard. Number eight is similar. He must be upright, but that also means he fears God and not man. I think we're up to number nine. I don't remember. Number nine, he must be holy. That means he is also set apart. Number 10, disciplined. That means he doesn't easily give in to temptations. And he knows how to fight spiritual battles. Right up to number 12? Whatever it is. I wrote K. But he is not a drunkard. Not drinking alcohol is not the qualification. It isn't wrong to drink alcohol but it is wrong to abuse it. And it will bring shame upon the elder, not only the elder, the church that he leads if he's given to drunkenness. So he must not be a drunkard. Drunkard. Following that, he must not be quarrelsome. It is the opposite of gentle and peaceful. It's someone who argues just for argument's sake. So the elder is not someone who adds tension to the church he is someone that alleviates the tension of the church. He must not be a lover of money. Money is a serious problem in the church. In 1 Timothy, it was not just today's church. Even back 
in Paul's time, he would write to Timothy, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You must not be tempted to become rich or a lover of money. He could be rich. Those are different things. And finally, he must not be arrogant. Not proud, but humble. He must know what it means to be a servant who understands that it is Jesus who says, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Elders must be able to show the character of Christ in their lives and leadership. To sum up then, elders and its plurality should be the norm for every church, and it will be the norm for this church. They are necessary for the proper ordering of the church. They are to set an example for the church and the home. And finally, they must be able to teach. Elders are a gift from God to the church. They are the ones that will throw themselves in harm's way to protect the sheep from wolves and other predators. They are to value character as they devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word for the church's holiness, unity, and maturity. They exercise church discipline and make good decisions for the Lord's people. God has placed them over us, and we are bound to follow the lawful directions of our church elders and pray for them that they would govern the church wisely. If you ask me, why are so many churches struggling today? Why does it seem that so many churches can't get their act together? I will give them the sermon. There's a sermon by the reformer Hugh Latimer, and he was a martyr. He died, um, one of the early martyrs of the Reformation. But in a sermon by uh, Hugh Latimer, he would say this. Is it old English? Remember, this is like in the 1500s, 1600s. So I, I'm trying to put it into modern English so we understand, but some old English will come out, okay? This is in the sermon, this is what he would say. And now I would ask a strange question. Who is the most diligent prelate? Prelate is another word for pastor or bishop, okay? Or elder. And now I would ask a strange question. Who is the most diligent prelate in all England that surpasses all the rest in this office? I can tell you, for I know who it is, and I know him well. Do you know who it is? It is the devil. He is the most diligent preacher from all the rest. He is never away from his congregation. You will never find him unoccupied. The most diligent preacher in all the realm. He is at every plow. He is ever applying his business. You shall never find him idle. There the devil is resident and has his plow going. Away with the books and up with the candles. Away with the Bible and up with the beads. Away with the light of the gospel and up with the light of the candles. Up with man's traditions and laws, down with God's traditions 
and his most holy word. Oh, that our pastors would be diligent to sow the corn of good doctrine, as Satan is to sow cockle and darnel. Cockle and darnel are things that would poison you or debilitate you. There was never such a preacher in England as he is. The prelates are lords and no laborers, but the devil is diligent at his plow. He is no unpreaching prelate. He is no lordly loiterer from his congregation, but a busy plowman. Therefore, you unpreaching prelates, learn from the devil to be diligent in your office. Learn from the devil, and you will not learn from God nor good men. For shame, learn of the devil. Latimer was calling out shame to these unqualified elders who thought their position was for some position of lordship and not a call to service and labor. You need not look far in history to find examples of how bad leaders can destroy an institution. But the word of God shows, up, shows us how we can raise up and keep good leaders. Latimer ended his sermon by calling on the church to pray for its leaders. And we must do the same now, not only for this church, but the other churches around us. And he ended it this way. Pray for him, him meaning the pastor. Pray for him, good people, pray for him. You have great cause and need to pray for him. So let's pray that God would do this for our church and our families, that he would raise up good elders, elders who fear God and not man, elders who are able to protect the sheep from false teachings, from wolves, that will be able to hold sound doctrine and rebuke those who reject sound doctrine, elders who will be able to hold on to all the qualifications that we see in the word of God, because elders are there as a gift from Christ to his church so that we can all mature and grow in the faith. Let's pray.